Welcome to What's Up with Opera. Opera is deeply rooted in history and tradition, but we're living in a post-George Floyd Me Too world, and now artists are rethinking the art form. So whose stories are we telling, and who gets to tell them? Can traditional opera be saved, and should it be? And what needs to happen for it to thrive? I speak with movers and shakers who have a bold new vision. Today, part one of my interview with Anne Majette. Anne is a lover of opera as well as a classical music critic. She was the first woman to review classical music for the New York Times, and until recently, she was the first chief classical music critic for the Washington Post. That's where she was at the start of the Me Too movement, and she helped to expose many stories of sexual assault and harassment long hidden in the opera world. She's seen in the industry as one of the most important classical music writers of the 21st century, and she's the perfect guest to talk about what we love about opera and what we need to leave behind. And I started by asking her, what made her fall in love with opera? It's a multi-stage question because I had phases of falling in love with opera. The short answer is that I went to see the movie of La Traviata by Franco Zeffirelli when I was 17 in a movie theater in Paris where I was on a family vacation. And um, I came out of that movie theater transfixed, totally changed. I, I ate, breathed, and slept the opera after that. I had cassette tapes in the little, you know, cassette player in the front seat of my car. We didn't even have them built into the dashboard then. I was driving around with my cassette tapes. I was just hooked. But context for that answer is that my uncle was an opera singer and quite a well-known opera singer. And um, he was the celebrant in Bernstein's Mass, which opened the Kennedy Center. I think it opened when I was five and I saw it in New York when I was six the next year. So I learned that recording by heart. And my uncle was subsequently in The Barber of Seville, The Merry Widow. Um, he did a number of things at City Opera. He made his debut at the Met as in Ariadne of Naxos, which was a long opera for a nine-year-old at the time. I was not such a prodigy that I fell into that. So I went to opera as a kid a lot. And it was a really cool thing because I thought my uncle was really cool. And um, I really enjoyed being there. And if you didn't behave, you didn't get to go again. Um, so I, I knew about sitting and being quiet and paying attention. And this was before supertitles, too. So as a little kid, you, you kind of knew that you weren't going to get the whole story and you kind of figured out how to follow along. Um, so while that moment when I saw that La Traviata movie was transfixing and transformative for me. Um, I had a lot of context going into that. And I also sang in choruses all my life. So vocal music is a tremendous thing for me. So it's a, it's a lifelong obsession, really, <laughs> on many levels. <laughs> That's a really fantastic way to get in because there is that sort of familiarity from your childhood, but then also that awakening when you get a little bit older. And I, I think that's so true about opera. It's an art form that we grow into over time, and it speaks to us in different ways in different times in our lives. This is true, although I also think it's a perfect art form for adolescence. Um, it's an art form, and you're 17 is a really good time to fall in love with opera. It's all about heightened emotions, being very loud about your emotions, crying at the top of your lungs, being angry at the top of your lungs, and being in love at the top of your lungs, and then sometimes very quietly as well. But um, it's it's right out there, and it's very colorful. So as a, as an accompanying soundtrack for my teens and 20s, um, you could really, I could have asked for no better or more appropriate, sometimes unfortunately, soundtrack. <laughs> well, you're a veteran opera critic and writer, and you are the first woman to review classical music for the New York Times. 
You wrote for the Washington Post. Uh, you have a very unique perspective on the shifts and the changes in opera. And I want to look at more recent changes in a moment, but I also wanted to start with some work of yours around the success of female composers and performers, uh, even instrument builders in the 18th and 19th centuries. A lot of barriers were broken 100 years ago, which is hard to imagine at this point when I still feel like we're working so hard to change things. What are some for you inside of that history for women inside of classical music? What stands out for you? Well, it's an interesting sociological question because I'm currently writing a book about the woman who built um, pianos for Beethoven. She was a very successful piano builder. Her father built pianos, which Mozart loved. She took over her father's business, established it in Vienna, and then her son took over and became one of Brahms's favorite piano builders. So there's a woman right at the center of this picture. This is, of course, not opera, but the more I research this woman as I'm working on this book, the more I discover, and this is really the key lesson to me, that she was not alone. We kind of assume that, oh my goodness, how unique a woman was really active at that time. There were lots and lots of active women at that time. There were lots of successful composers, singers, of course, because you have always needed women in opera for that, um, instrumentalists. Obviously, yes, they had obstacles. Obviously, those obstacles were enough that they are not carried down to posterity, partly because posterity is jury-rigged against them. Um, but it's a much richer and more diverse picture when you really look at it than we are led to believe. And uh, I, I quote this a lot. In 1796, there was a kind of encyclopedia of classical music that came out in the German-speaking world. And it's like 35% of the entries were women. So women were very well represented at the time. Enlightenment, people acknowledged these women were great. A century later, a new... Encyclopedia of Classical Music came out, and almost all the men were still in there, and almost all the women were gone. So there's a lesson about how history kind of shoves out the women, and how the 19th century, when our canon was forming, was very cruel to women. Uh, women didn't fit into the posterity that our canon required, but they were there in the late 18th century. And um, the woman I'm writing about spanned that time. So she began as a kind of emancipated woman of the Enlightenment and ended up as a much more sort of taking a backseat, more demure um, figure. She, she wasn't really a trailblazer. I mean, she was a tremendous trailblazer, but I don't think she really cared about making strides for women. She cared about doing well by her piano shop. And um, she was really happy to see her son take it over, which was the way that, that the industry worked at that time. But I will add to that, I recently gave a webinar about women in classical music sort of through the ages, beginning with my woman's era. Her name was Nanette Streicher, and her best friend was named Nanette von Schaden. And Nanette von Schaden was one of the best piano players of the time, widely acknowledged as one of the best in Europe. Um, I picked five women, but I made a point of picking only women who were successful in their day, as opposed to... You know, even Fanny Mendelssohn, who was quite recognized, but we know about her being thwarted. I was looking at people like Amelie Meyer, who wrote eight symphonies and was a co-director of the opera in Berlin, or at least had a, an administrative post. I don't know what the hierarchy, how that hierarchy then compares to our hierarchy now. Um, I, I bet you have not heard a lot of music by Amelie Meyer. And there are a lot of people like that and a lot of women who did have very active lives and roles 
who have not been passed down to us. Um, this is not a specific answer to opera, of course, but they are in opera too. And opera at least has given a platform to women in that you got to have a soprano. <laughs> and uh, although if you look at opera roles, it's still true that there are many fewer roles for women than for men. There's, you know, the soprano and the mezzo, and then there's 25 men and chorus. Um, so, you know, finding equity, finding our place in this very male tradition is a problem, but it's also just finding the spotlight and the voice for the people who have been working. We've always been a part of this tradition. So I'm trying to shed a little light on that in the past, as well as in the present, when women have had their own obstacles, certainly, but at least female composers now, I think, have an easier time getting some recognition than they did in 1810. <laughs> for Emily Meyer, who obviously, she's in a time when she has broken barriers, you know, what did she have to overcome, do you think, to arrive where she arrived to actually achieve in her own time? I think she was constantly struggling. Um, she started kind of late in music. She would organize sort of annual concerts of her own work. She made sure it got heard. She got reviewed at the time and she got very positively reviewed by men saying, gosh, we didn't know that a woman could write such great music. You know, or like, it's remarkable that this woman really does it as well as a man could do it, um, which is kind of the tone that male reviewers still take on when they're writing about female composers. If you look at recent CD reviews of exhumed works by older composers, the language is still incredibly patronizing and incredibly um, seeking to validate only through comparing to men we know, which automatically puts women in second place. If you say it sounds like Beethoven or it sounds like Mendelssohn, it's damning with faint praise because obviously you're not Beethoven, you know, better to sound like yourself. But that said, Amelie Myers, she, she worked hard, but she did have male colleagues. She was accepted to a certain degree, but I think that not every male composer had to work that hard. Although I'm, I'm thinking out loud. Entrepreneurship has always been a part of this field, too. We have this sort of illusion that, you know, oh, composers shouldn't have to meddle with commerce. And of course, Mozart and Beethoven were entrepreneurs, too. We have a million letters about how Mozart is trying to work and trying to get a better job and trying to place his music out there and Beethoven as well. So let's not have illusions about, you know, the great ivory tower temple where people just sit and produce beautiful music. Um, it's work for everybody. Women had a harder time possibly doing that work because of the social conventions around what it took to do that work. Um, you couldn't schmooze in a coffee house the same way. You couldn't, there weren't the same social avenues open to every woman, um, but there were certainly ways to do it. And, and obviously women's salons were a huge place to disseminate music by both men and women. And women who ran salons were extremely powerful in the cultural worlds of Paris, Berlin, Vienna, not everywhere, of course, but there were a lot. You're listening to What's Up With Opera. If you're enjoying our conversation with Anne Majette, don't miss the second half of our feature interview, where she talks about the need for genuine inclusion in opera. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe and leave us a review. Why has opera been so traditionally exclusionary to women, and I think remains in many ways doggedly so? It's it's interesting. I mean, classical music as a whole suffers from this secular religion phenomenon, 
where um, it's all so great and audience are supposed to be dazzled by the itness of it all and the greatness of it all and sit in silence in velvet chairs and only receive. Um, the way we've made our audiences passive in classical music has done a tremendous disservice to the art form. Um, if you went to the opera in 19th century Italy, it would be like going to a baseball game. There'd be people, you know, hawking food and people yelling at each other and people saying, shush, I want to hear the aria and people flirting. And um, now it's supposed to be so quiet that people are incredibly afraid even to have an opinion, you know, and you see somebody booze at the opera house and it unleashes a firestorm of commentary about the decline of the West because somebody dared to have an opinion. Um, this recently happened at the Metropolitan Opera and uh, obviously nobody likes to be booed or heckled, but um, let's not all be so sensitive about it. Um, so you have this tradition and the tradition is guarded by gatekeepers. The gatekeepers have been male and the entire industry is trying to uphold a century old tradition. So I think the gatekeepers have become more and more atrophied. You know, the, the idea of changing it. There are people who are very afraid at the idea of doing any kind of production that moves opera into the present, much less reworking opera. I mean, I've seen a wonderful version of Madame Butterfly by a small opera company called the In Series in Washington. And they tried to strip away all the Japan, you know, the Japanese stuff in Madame Butterfly is so racist and so problematic. And I'm not condemning Puccini out of hand because he lived in a different time and he had different mores and he really had a lot of sympathy for the character and he was trying. But by our standards, it is extremely racist. And um, to see it stripped of all its Japanese shtick and just letting the performers do it. It was a, a black box kind of thing with a piano accompaniment. But that was fascinating and refreshing and important. And it doesn't take away Puccini. It doesn't mean we're throwing out Puccini. It means we're adding to our understanding and to our own critical thought and to our own engagement with that work. Um, and I think there are some audiences who still feel that if you do it in any other way than what the composer has sanctioned, you're somehow threatening or attacking the composer. There's a tremendous kind of um, knee-jerk defensiveness that grows up in audiences, which is really unfortunate because our work is so much stronger than that. The whole point about art of any kind is that it can stand up to multiple interpretations. Um, the greater a work, the more interpretations you can do of it. And perhaps you discover that what you like was more traditional, but it doesn't hurt to have multiple readings. I mean, goodness knows we've been doing that to the Bible for generations in a number of religions and the Bible is still going strong. You know, I'm so struck by um, that comment you made about the salons, right? So women, just because we tend to socially be pushed into a certain part of society, we do find a power place to work from. And that may explain why in those circles and, and chamber music perhaps, or song cycle, we actually see more of it, but in the opera house, it remains that sort of general director, CEO, which is more of a traditional man at the top of the giant corporation model, which we also see today in many fields, not just opera. So true. And one of the fundamental problems with opera and one reason women have been marginalized is that singers as a whole are marginalized in opera. Ironically, because singers are so central, but singers very seldom have any authority in the opera house. They can have tantrums and be consoled, which is sort of the stereotype about singers. Most of them are very good, hardworking colleagues, but the leadership positions are all taken by stage directors, conductors, general managers, and those have tended to be men and not to be singers. And it's very interesting to watch a room full of singers, again, male and female, who are coming in with decades of knowledge and experience to a stage director who maybe doesn't speak the language the opera's in, doesn't really know it, and is going to have them all dress up in 
you know, fat suits or something. And these singers desperately trying to go along with it, but not really being heard. And I think a lot of singers today are sort of trying to re-empower themselves. And this is directly tied to the question about women, because a male production team telling women what to do is a really problematic thing. And if you look at when the Metropolitan Opera did the Robert Lepage Ring a couple years ago, and there was a big documentary made of it, and um, the three Rhine maidens had to be hoisted up on big hoists at front. And um, in the documentary, there's this kind of, the men are standing at the bottom sort of chuckling at the women's fear at being hoisted up there. And it's just like these little vignettes in the documentary that I found appalling. Like, why are we making fun of these women? I would be scared, you know, and I bet those three men would be scared if you hauled them up 20 feet in the air on those wires, you know? It's really fundamentally offensive. And as I said, men are subject to it as well. But because there are fewer women and because women have had less outlet in those other positions of power, it becomes more marked and more pronounced. So what do we do about that? You know, we witness these moments, right, of women being made fun of, belittled, singers as a whole not having any power. What do we do? You know, I... I quit my institutional job at the Washington Post in 2019, and I think I've become much more um, radical in my views since then. <laughs> I have a sort of burn it all down attitude. I find it highly problematic that opera's main proponent are these large institutions, multi-million dollar institutions, which suck all of the funding and creative energy out of the field in each town they're in. Now, this said, I love opera passionately and I love grand opera passionately. I love to go to the Met. I love to dress up. I love all kinds of opera, but there are so many ways to do it. And I've seen so much really exciting opera in very small venues where people are really trying to be creative, as, like the Madame Butterflies I described to you. Um, or there's a small company in Virginia, which I've actually only seen on video, where they are trying to create a singer-driven company where the singers have agency and trying to come up through that with models that could be applied or with best practices that could be applied at other houses. I am all about that. I am hugely supportive and a big cheerleader of their work because it's exciting to watch that kind of thing come to the fore and be spoken of. So I think those are beginnings, trying to find a diversity in the way we present opera. We present opera and classical music as if the way it was done 50 years ago is the best. And if you think of anything else in the world, film, cars, any product you think of, we accept that things change with time and we can love, I mean, I, I say this ad nauseum, we could love a 1947 Cadillac and appreciate that it's a great car, but not think that everybody needs to be driving them and not think that every factory needs to be making a certain number of them as well as some of the new stuff. And to see opera so much clinging to this artificial life support, um, this is less true in Europe. And I think in Europe, the opera houses have more contemporary work and more of a role in their society because they're not treating it as if everything has to be preserved. Um, if every factory that was 100 years old had to be preserved, we would have a landscape littered with obsolete factories producing things nobody wants. And look, that's a lot what the opera landscape looks like. Um, so I wish, I mean, Opera Philadelphia, you mentioned, there's a traditional opera house that's trying very hard to transform the role of what an opera house can do and trying to hold to the traditional and yet also do all this other wonderful stuff. And it's not rocket science. There are lots of people who would probably love opera, but who don't want to go sit in a red velvet chair in silence. It doesn't mean they wouldn't love Verity if they saw it, but maybe they just don't like the delivery method. Um, because after all, when you're going out and paying a lot of money, you want something that's fun for you. And people have fun in a lot of different ways. And there's a lot of ways to present opera that doesn't involve the red velvet that could be really fun for people. 
You spoke a little bit earlier about uh, women and mistreatment of women in the opera. And I know you have been directly involved in the Me Too movement and co-wrote a groundbreaking article for the Washington Post about sexual harassment in classical music. Uh, What did you expose in your work? It was a very sobering um, experience to work on that article. Um, I didn't seek it out necessarily myself. Somebody came to me and said, I think you should write this. And I said, well, I'm a a critic. Music critics are not trained as investigative journalists. I can try to hook people up with an investigator if they have something. And he said, no, people will talk to you. They'll come to you. And so he, through his channels, and it was a couple of people, but it started going out on Facebook that I would take your stories. And I started seeing the social media posts that you can come to Anne Majette with your stories. And I'm a great fan of social media for all of its ills and horrible things. I think it's it's also a very interesting thing to watch and it does a lot of good. And um, so I, I don't like to meddle in it. I wasn't going to shut it down and say, I didn't say that. I just let it play out. And people began coming to me. And I really had no idea. You realize as a critic, you're naive, even as a female critic, even if a musician makes a pass at you, you are Me Too proof because Me Too is about the intersection of power and sex. So if a, if a conductor made a pass at me and I punched him in the nose and he went out the next day and said, Anne Majette is the most horrible person in the world, he'd probably find a lot of people to agree with him. But my editors would stand behind me and my job would not be threatened. And I could write trash about him too and everybody would be fine. But if I were a singer and a conductor did that, I would really have to worry about him trash talking me. I would worry that not only might he never hire me again, but he may talk to people and I would get a name as somebody who was a problem. And the horrifying thing being that sometimes I know of one story where a basically good guy conductor made a pass at a good mezzo soprano or soprano female singer. And she said, um, you know, no, thank you. And the next morning it called up and apologized like a madman and I was drunk and I'm so sorry. So fine. In the normal world, that's fine. But of course he never hired her again because he was mortified. So of course she lost a major part of her career and her income, which had been working with that conductor. And although nothing happened and he's not a Me Too offender. And that kind of example opens your eyes to just how insidious and how challenging it is to eradicate this kind of behavior. I mean, when I say this kind of behavior, a lot of what I heard were stories of assault. And people assume that, you know, we who have exposed Me Too have been putting too much emphasis on men flirting or European mores or whatever. And there is a huge difference between men flirting. There's a difference between making a pass at someone. There's a difference between adultery. All of those things are not Me Too. Me Too is that particular combination of putting someone in a position where they feel that saying no might impact their future and where they feel that their art has perhaps never been valued at all and they were only being led along for their sexual potential or excitement. And um, the confluence of those two things is absolutely devastating to people. And I talked to so many people whose careers had just been shattered, partly whether they were young people who've been groomed for a few years and then realized they were groomed. The feeling immediately is stupidity. How could I have been so blind? How could I have thought that that person thought I was so talented and special? He just wanted to sleep with me. And so all of their trust in their specialness and talent could go away too. And it's not about having somebody pat your butt at a party. It's not about 
even somebody who has a lot of consensual sex. I mean, you can think of certain singers where they had lots and lots of consensual sex. And as they got older, you know, once the man is 70 and the woman is 20, just how consensual is it? You know, and is he still as gorgeous as he thinks he is? So I really learned a lot about power dynamics and just how prevalent it was and how destroyed some people were by this. And of course, every field has had its Me Too stories. But again, people think classical music is above it all and classical music is so special and wonderful at the same time that, you know, opera traditionally don't date a singer. Theater was a sort of not socially acceptable profession back in the 18th and 19th century. That idea that, you know, theater people were a different world and they had different mores and they were loose women and they all had affairs and whatever. That's always been a part of the tradition, too. And also opera, I believe this is a big part of it. Opera is also very sexy. You're doing something with your entire body, making a sound without amplification that can reach a 3000 seat auditorium. It's a very visceral thing. And the people who hear it experience it viscerally as well. It, it is a physical intensity to the whole thing. And if you get people in a rehearsal room with that kind of physical intensity, with stories involving strong feelings, it's very easy to understand. I mean, we all know about shipboard romances in uh, any time you've been in your high school play, everybody got crushes on each other and you were working very hard together. That's sort of a natural human thing. And it's just important to know how to deal with it as professionals and um, not to let it run rampant. Um, and another factor, when I said that singers were um, disempowered in the field, so you have male singers who are feeling very emasculated by feeling that they don't have much power. And so some male singers, as a particular genre of Me Too, that's male singers being absolutely unbelievable to female singers, like, you know, sticking your tongue down her throat right before she's got to sing an aria on stage in full view of everybody. And the audience is like, oh, how passionate. And then she tears into her aria and you better believe she's feeling passionate. And everybody's like, that was amazing. What an energy you two have between you. And um, that kind of thing goes on quite a bit too. What surprised you most out of all these stories? But what surprised you most about what you found I think I was surprised how widespread it was. I was surprised. I, I coined my own little personal hashtag, oh no, not you too. I felt like so many people I respected and liked were doing this. Almost every single man who contacted me during the eight months I was working on that story, even friends who were like, I'm just here to give you support. I later discovered that literally every male who did that had a story and was worried I'd found out the story and was trying to figure out if I'd found it out. However genuine their professions of support. <laughs> and um, that was disturbing. And just to find out the people you admired were capable of rape and assault and, and that women are putting up with it, it, it changes your view of the dynamics of the field. And you think how quick, it's a very gossipy field. And there are lots of women who are branded as, oh, she's difficult, oh, she's a piece of work. And sometimes when you discover what lies behind that piece of work, which can be no more than standing up for yourself, not putting up with the crap in rehearsal, it gives you much more sympathy. I am, I am very sympathetic to a lot of people who have borne that label. And a lot of people who have not borne that label have put up with a lot of crap. It's, and, and then some people are very lucky and have not had anything happen. It's not like every single person, you know, it's the same story with every field. You could have worked with that person and said, he's lovely. He never did anything to me. But the fact that he did it to maybe 
10 women, but not to the other thousand he worked with. You know, that's 10 is a lot of women. It's not cool. And also very, very often it goes hand in hand with abusive power dynamics that get much more widely played out. And this was very easy in the age when conductors were these sort of all powerful maestros that they can be emotionally abusive, they can play power games, they can remove opportunities. And again, this becomes very toxic at the lower level when you have men who don't feel they're very powerful or that they're very well known. Like, you know, a big Midwestern university where some guy is blocking opportunity for an entire class of female artists. And the university protocols, again, like that's that case I told you where the woman said no and the man apologized, but then the woman is the one who loses the work. University protocols can work like that too. I heard of one case where the woman reported it immediately. She wasn't traumatized. The university stepped right in. Okay, he can only contact you by email and you can no longer talk or be in. Well, great, except that guy runs all of the music ensembles, not just at the university, but in town. And all of the people working in that program get their performing opportunities through this guy. And all of a sudden, you are blocked from it. So simply through going through the proper channels and being defended by the university, a woman can lose all of the opportunities that go with getting a degree in that field in that particular place. And um, I have told that story to administrators. There's no identifying details in that story. But I'd say think hard about what your policies are and whether they are actually defending a woman, you know, or whether they're just checking a box that sort of satisfies everything, but doesn't really help. I really hear when you tell me this, I hear how personal some of this is for you. I really love the field and I really love opera and I really feel like a part of it. And just having all of these stories suddenly entrusted to me really shocked me, but then you want to do something with it. Like, you know, then you're the one in the position of power who can possibly tell to, and of course, there were many, many stories that we couldn't report. There were many stories that we couldn't get out there. These are very serious allegations. And however impassioned you are, you don't want to go out just saying, well, this guy did that and this guy did that. That's irresponsible. And that's equally horrible. You know, you want to make really, really certain that if you're saying something in print, that you believe it 100% and that you have multiple sources to back it up. And you know, you just try to be as dispassionate presenting these are the facts, you know, you can't get on a soapbox and start haranguing, which was hard for me as a critic, because as a critic, your job is to harangue, your job is to have lots of opinions. And uh, and as an investigative journalist, that is not at all your job. And uh, I was teamed up with Peggy McGlone, who's a crack investigative reporter. And it was a real learning experience for me, certainly, to learn what she could and couldn't say, and what I was used to being able to say. And when it did come out, I felt that we had left so much on the cutting room floor that there was nothing left to it. And I was really astonished that it had as much effect as it did and very, very gratified. I was really happy that we were able to do something. Although after a year or two, I think everybody sort of drifted back into their positions. Anne Majette is a classical music critic. What's Up With Opera is a podcast by Pacific Opera Victoria. It's produced by me, Rebecca Haas, along with Denise Ball and Jennifer Van Evra. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, write us a review, and share. And join me for part two of my conversation with Anne Majette, when we'll talk about what she loves about opera, what needs to change, and what gives her hope.